Do you feel the need, the need for speed these guys have? We're talking to fighter pilots in the hangar. I used to be a well-respected member of the aviation community, and then I started flying a Cirrus, and that changed. Oh, that was great until the engine quit. And all of a sudden, I see these explosions and these trees exploding. I'm walking away a better pilot because of this discussion. Welcome to this edition of In the Hangar. We've got two fighter pilots. Guys, thanks for coming in. We've got Jason, we've got Gary. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having us. Okay, so let's do a quick introductions. So Jason, we'll start with you. Tell us about who you are and uh, how you flew with the Navy. Uh, my name is Jason Gustin. I uh, started flying in the Navy back in uh, 1998. And uh, after a 20-year career flying a mix of uh, F-18s and some training aircraft, I just recently retired. And uh, I got to continue my passion for aviation uh, flying on the outside here. So you're transitioning from the military to a civilian. That's right. You're going to be a part uh, 121, 135? 121. 121. Gary, what, tell us about your background. Well, I flew uh, basically F-4s, uh, went to pilot training out in Big Spring, Texas, and then went to uh, France for my first assignment. And my second assignment was uh, Vietnam. And then from Vietnam, I got to England, and then back to the States as an instructor pilot. And, then went on to uh, uh, a master's in Russian, so. Wow, some of your coworkers have told me a little bit, uh, some stories you probably can't tell, but uh, we'll, we'll go as far as we can in a minute. Okay, so let me ask you guys a question about MOAs. When you see that, that uh, Cessna high wing that's out there, do you ever feel the, the urge to kind of like play cat and mouse with them? I never did, I, <laughs> but, uh, but I did fly through a, a gunnery range uh, a bombing range one day. I was an instructor pilot at Shaw, and when you take off to the north, you can turn either direction, but when you take off to the south, you can't turn left. And I had a pilot who had really a hard, hard time transitioning to the F-4. He flew F-86s, and he was still back in the chocks when we were going through 10,000 feet. But we took, took off, and he made this hard left turn, and this F-100 went right by the nose, and I looked out, and number two was there. We flew right between two of them. Wow. So, uh, you know, when it's, when it's your time, you're going to go. When it's, <laughs> when, I, when it's not, you get to be sitting here talking to you. So, so Jason, what about you? Did you guys uh, fly in those F-18s? Do you ever get to feel the uh, need to, to uh, play cat and mouse with, the, with us general aviation well, pilots? sometimes, you know, you think it might be fun, but it would be a hard time having, uh, having that conversation with the boss when you come back from a flight. But there were times that we would we would train with light civil aviation. The uh, the threat sometimes, you know, from an air defense perspective, could be a high wing Cessna, somebody you know misbehaving, doing something they're not supposed to. So we would train to intercept them at, at lower altitudes and lower speeds. So we would have some fun with them, but you know, by the book. All right. So Gary, you're Vietnam. Uh, you had uh, Jason. You had some experience in Afghanistan. Um, what? Let's talk about transitioning from military to civilian, and, and specifically the aviation differences. So, uh, Gary, what was it like coming out of, um, of the military when you did, and when did you uh, retire? I came out in the late 70s, 79, and I worked, went to work for an automobile dealer who had a King Air, mm -hmm. and part of the reason that uh, I was getting hired is I could fly with him to, from Long Beach, California, over to Phoenix, and. Uh, up to Sacramento where our dealerships were, so that was, that was my transition, and it was relatively easy. Well, I mean, but going from an F-4 Phantom to a King Air, I mean, 
were you just ex- happy to be in the cockpit, or did you miss the Phantom? I mean, um, well, you, you you miss it, but the reason I left the uh, F4 was I got bored with it after twelve and a half years, and I had twenty five hundred hours in it, and I'd pretty well done everything the plane was supposed to do, and maybe some things it wasn't supposed <laughs> to do, and. Uh, so that's why I went and got the master's in Russian, just because I got bored, bored with the F-4. So. Interesting. And what about you, uh, Jason? You're just now coming out of the military. What's transition like for you? Well, it's a, it's a lifestyle change. I mean, I, I entered the service as a young adult, and it's, you know, it was really the only job I ever, ever really had, you know, besides, you know, youngster mowing lawns and that kind of stuff. Um, so trying to stay in aviation was kind of my, my long-term goal, and, and that was part of the reason I, I decided to retire from the Navy. There were other opportunities to stay in, but not to fly. As you get more senior, you know, your jobs become more staff-oriented, staff yeah, desk-bound for sure, and those opportunities just get more limited. And uh, it was just kind of the right time for, for me and the family to, to kind of shift gears. Um, but uh, in the market right now for, for pilots yeah. is... is uh, still growing, which I find kind of remarkable, but that's, you know, that's just kind of a sine wave. There were, there were times where, you know, airlines weren't hiring anybody for years, and, and now they can't seem to get enough folks, so uh, that kind of comes and goes a little bit. Yeah, I, I read something in the news a couple of weeks ago that um, the military is actually offering signing bonuses to pilots to try to keep them in because they're not able to compete with the uh, the civilian world offering. Well, know. so many of the airline pilots didn't retire, they stayed on their job. Now all of those people that didn't retire back then are being forced out. So uh, it's a time where they're adding airplanes and needing a lot of pilots. All right, so let's let's get into some stories. Gary, let's start with you. Um, you you flew F-4s in the 70s and late 60s. Mm-hmm. So um, when you're asked like, uh, what kind of stories can you tell? What comes to mind? Well, uh, my youngest daughter said, uh, Dad, you have to start being careful because cats have nine lives and you've already <laughs> used up three cats. So I am lucky to be <laughs> sitting here talking with you today. And I mean, you know, you hear about uh, friendly fire. I had a mission up in the demilitarized zone in Vietnam and it was to photograph a B-52 bombing raid. And so we took off and uh, went up there and we're flying at 1,000 feet at midnight. And all of a sudden I see these explosions and these trees exploding. And the B-52s were up at 30,000 feet just dropping the bombs because they had a weather delay in Guam and had a three-hour delay. And so we were filming what they were supposed to do three hours ago when they were up wow. there dropping oh bombs. <laughs> So I flew into North Vietnam to get away from the friendly fire. Wow. So you could just see those trees. <laughs> so there was a cat life number one. <laughs> yeah. There have been a few of those. All right. Well, one of the things you told me um, when we were, we were talking yesterday, um, you know, I found very interesting is that um, you, you got your bronze star for, for basically, I mean, you guys were flying yeah. at a time where, I, I forget that most of the stuff that we've learned and and uh, about flying and everything comes from the military and what you guys pioneered. So what were some of the things that you did there to further aviation? Pilots don't normally get bronze stars. That's usually for a, a ground activity. And 
we had uh, camera systems. We had side-looking radar. We had infrared and uh, side cameras and bottom cameras that took a 360-degree uh, view. Well, we were losing about 25% of our missions because of the way the infrared mirrors were working. When you're coming in at 35,000, they're super saturated cold. And when you get down to 1,000 feet in the humidity, they were fogging over, so the cameras weren't working. So uh, the lieutenants got to pick a area that they would go work for a couple of weeks or a month. And so I wanted to go take a look at that problem and sat down with the engineers for a couple of weeks. And we re-engineered the way the doors opened and the way the mirrors and that were working. And uh, the effectiveness went from 75% up to like 95%. So a lot less missions. And you know we went over with the 25 crew members and you know 19 of us came back. So there's a lot of friends that are sitting there at dinner that uh, aren't there the next night. And you don't want to be going back any more than you have to. Jason, what about you? What kind of um, stories can you, you know, you're, you're taking off from a carrier in the, you know, in the, in the Gulf area, flying missions. What comes to mind? Well, you know, first I'll say it's an honor to sit here with Gary. It was a much different, uh, much different operating environment when, when folks were shooting back and Afghanistan was far more permissive than, than Vietnam was. So, so thanks for all you did. Um, but, uh, you know, anything around the ship is, is pretty fascinating. You, you know, the thing that, that rings true, and I like to talk to folks about, you know, who love flying, that when you would brief before a flight and you sit down, everybody's in the ready room, and they put the weather brief up. And at the very end of the brief, they, they put where the nearest divert is and where the nearest land is, which, you know, back in the day, people, if you couldn't land on board the ship, you know, sometimes, you know, you're, you're going to put down in the water someplace and might as well be, be close to land. And, uh, and typically that was, you know, nearest airfield, you know, maybe Key West, and it's, you know, 100 miles away or 200 miles away. Well, we were off the, uh, uh, near the Philippines, and I remember the brief said that the nearest airport was 1,500 miles and the nearest land was 1,400 miles. So it gives you an appreciation, really, for what the Navy does. And when you take, you know, four and a half acres of sovereign steel and you can put it anywhere in the world and operate freely and that gives a lot of flexibility to you know our national leadership and what we can what we can do what we can provide so that freedom of operation i just think is is probably the coolest thing about that job and most of the stories tend to you know they come around from uh, from those roots you know things that happen on the ship or around the ship and uh, so i'm flying with the boss in the back seat we're flying over australia on this really long mission and uh, we come back, and the deck is just moving like crazy. It's bobbing around. It was the hardest flight I'd ever had to land on board the ship. There were three or four landing attempts where I got waved off because the deck was moving too much. A couple of times I landed, and the hook just missed the wires, but I was getting really low on fuel. We were in one of those situations where there's no airport to go to. So you're either landing here or you're getting gas. So last time around, finally land. We were below the minimum fuel we were supposed to be landing with, but I got the boss with me, so I can't get in too much trouble. And the funny part was, there's a tradition on the Navy where when a senior captain comes or goes, they ring him on board with a bell. So whenever he takes off, they're like, ding, 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 commander departing. So my buddy comes in and he goes, hey, the poor bell ringer, every time you, every time you went around, he would start ringing the bell for the 
for the air wing commander, and then he would have to stop, or ding, ding, arriving, ding, ding, depart. And I was like, all right, give me enough grief. I'm here, thanks, let's go eat. That was kind of the, the way that one ended up. But uh, a lot of exciting times around the ship. And well, let's go back to that, that story. You know, as a, as, you know, as a general aviation, you know, we, and uh, instrument rated, we have our minimums and everything else. You know, what, what in the world would a minimum look like for a bobbing deck? Uh, well, the approach minimums are, are still the approach minimums, but we have uh, folks on board the carrier right next to the landing area that will actually talk to you on the radio. And if you can't see the ship, you will continue the approach and they will continue to talk you down to a landing. There's also automatic systems, so it's radar based, right. so that the, the ship and the aircraft talk to each other so that you can land. But like. You you said the the deck was bobbing quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, are there are there like limits to how much of a pitch? There are, and and those we call them a landing signal signals officer. Mm -hmm. They're responsible for monitoring that. So pitch is actually relatively easy to manage. There's okay. a couple others that are harder with the ship. I guess it's more yeah, it's more uh, predictable. It's very predictable. Um, the ship moves at a very predictable rate, but if the ship all of a sudden kind of comes straight up, that's, that's the most dangerous. That's bad, yeah. Um, some, some other motions are less likely to happen, but. All right, so you said you came in and you didn't hook. I mean, you've got almost no time to, to gun it and go around. Are you just so used to, you know, missing and going? I mean, how do oh, you? no, not used to missing. We don't, we don't <laughs> miss very often. <laughs> well, I mean. Uh, well, the standard procedure is when you touch down, you go to full power. Oh, we, regardless. Every time. Every time. So there are times they may pull one of the wires off for maintenance and you don't know it's not there. Right. You may, your, your hook may catch it and then it lets go and it spits the wire. Right. Um, you may just be a little high and you miss them. So the procedure is every time you add full power, just in the event that you don't stop, you can safely fly away. And as soon as you feel that hook, then you And once you back. kind of slow down, you hold it for about a half second and then you'll, you'll okay. throttle back. Well, that's really interesting. Gary, so um, you, you studied Russian. So, like, um, I imagine that was useful during the uh, Cold War years. Any stories there? What about cat life number four, five, six, or seven? Well, those those pretty well live in the in the F four. Um, the Russian part was very interesting. I used to go through uh, Checkpoint Charlie wow. in a limousine with an <laughs> APC in front of me and an APC behind me, and there was a safe house in East Berlin called the Potsdam House and that was staffed by Russian waiters and Russian waitresses and we'd go in there and meet people and have movies and eat dinner and assign people different tasks yeah. that we needed to get done. So that was interesting. My meeting places were Paris, London, Oslo, Stockholm, you know, dressing in a business suit. So wow. People, where are you going? So it was, it was neat. Uh, All right, well, when you left, left that, did you continue in aviation? No, I went into the car business. Okay, you that, were uh, flying, John and then you, yeah. so let me ask. So recently, a year ago, um, you got a chance to uh, kind of get back into aviation at least for a day. Tell me about that. Well, I was a honorary wing commander out at the Joint Navy Air Base in uh, Fort Worth, and the honorary commanders get a chance to go for riding an F-16. So you go out and do your egress training. You know, get out of it in case there's a fire or something on the ground and and a week or so later you go out and suit up put your G suit on and go out and hop in the F16 and 
get in the back seat. I, I did the walk around, you know, did the inspection with him and got in the back seat and taxied out and we took off and we did a burner climb just like almost straight up, no, not quite, but almost. And we got up to 17,000 feet and he said, you want to fly it? And I said, I sure do. So <laughs> the, in the F-4, the stick is here. In okay. the F-16, the stick's here. So that's, that's a little different. So I just did some straight. It's like a Cirrus. Straight, straight, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just did some straight level turns like this to kind of get the feel of the stick. Because yeah. the stick's quite a bit different. You know, you just kind of tap it and it starts moving on you. So I said, okay, I'll start doing some acrobatics. So I started doing some aileron rolls and, and I did a couple split S's and, and I did a barrel roll. And I said, oh, that wasn't very good. I want to do another one. He said, oh, that was pretty good. I said, no, let me do another one. I said, okay, that's good. And then uh, he said, what, what else you want to do? And I said, uh, I'd like to go down and fly some low level. So I said, let's go down to, because in the F4, that's, I lived at 500 feet. You know, wow. We started at, uh, 360, and when you got comfortable at 360, you went to 420. When you were comfortable at 420, then you'd practice at 480. And then certain areas, we could run 510. So, you know, you're, you're sitting there with the map, and things are going by uh, quickly at 510 knots, 500 wow. feet. So, uh, did, went and did that, and then I said, oh, I'd like to shoot a uh, instrument approach. So he called uh, the base and said, you know, we'd like to shoot a GCA. And they said, well, we're not up yet. Uh, and he said, well, okay. So in about two minutes, they called back and said, uh, you still want to shoot that instrument approach? I said, yeah, sure do. So we turned around and he let me shoot the instrument approach. And then he did a couple closed uh, low approaches and we landed, so. You said a GCA approach? I haven't heard of that. Uh, ground controlled approach. Okay. Is that a they, they talk you through it, yeah. It's, so it's a radar-based approach where okay. the controller looks at you on the scope and he tells you where you are relative to High the, and low. the final. Yeah, we don't get that in the general aviation world. <laughs> um, because most of the most of the burdens put on the operator to have the equipment. So right. this was, you know, for airplanes like the F-18 doesn't have an ILS. Wow. So it's wow. Right. And, I mean, like the first <clears throat> instrument check ride I had in France. Uh, normally you, you take off and they've got a hood they put up so right. you can't see outside. And uh, he said, well, leave the hood off until we get out of the clouds. Well, we flew for an hour and 30 minutes and we never yeah, got, out, never got so out, out of action. the clouds. So we had different bases, you know, around shot low approaches. And we came in for the, the landing and here's the runway. And when we broke out of the clouds right at minimums, we were over here. <laughs> so the in instructor in the front seat said, I've got it. And he took it and lined it up. The next thing I know, we're going like this, and we hit the ground. And I'm, what in the heck, Colonel? What are you doing? You know, he was a Stanavell Lieutenant Colonel, and uh, he rolls out and he said, "What were you doing?" I said, "What do you mean? What was I doing? You were the one flying the airplane." He said, "Well, no, I gave it back to you because <laughs> you you have to have a completed landing for the check ride." And I said, "I never shook that stick and nobody said I got landed. It. <laughs> nobody landed it. Nobody landed wow. it. Nobody landed it. Wow! So is that number it's, six or number seven? That, <laughs> that was pretty early on, but that was scary. That wow! Was just going to go. What's he doing? Because you know we were off, so I knew he was. And I thought, well, maybe he overcorrected. And There's that uh, proper transfer of uh, <laughs> controls. Wow! Yeah. Um, you got to know who's flying the plane. So when you flew the F-16 last year, um, was that your first time back in the cockpit for a long time? 
Um, but did it come back easily? You know, it's kind of like riding a bicycle in, in my mind. Once, once you've done as much, you know, when we go to pilot training, you go for a year and you eat, sleep, study, breathe. I mean, the training is fantastic. And then being an IP and as many hours teaching other people mm -hmm. that here's what you got to do. And one thing you talk about the transition, when you're an instructor pilot and you're talking to a student, say, you need to do this this way at this airspeed, they pay attention. A lot of times in civilian life, when you say, I want the camera here, I want this or whatever, they're not always, uh, exactly. uh, <laughs> yeah. not always paying as close attention as they should. And that was a big, uh, that was a big adjustment for me. Because, mm. you know, there was their life, so they really did pay attention. The attention to detail is, yeah. Follow that checklist. Yeah. And, you know, when, you, when you're in the plane as much as we were, you pretty well know what you have to check. And a lot of people didn't use the checklist. You know, I'd sweep the cockpit, but I always go back with the checklist and make sure I didn't miss anything. And some pilots didn't. They didn't use that checklist. And uh, you pay a price at some point when you don't do that. Hmm. Well, guys, thank you so much for being a part of this show. And uh, it was great getting to, to talk with you and the stories and everything else. And thank you for your service. It's just phenomenal. It blows me away. I'm humbled by you guys. So, so thanks for having us, Dan. You bet. Thanks for watching, you guys. Make sure you share, subscribe, leave comments, um, and we'll talk to you later. All right.